You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. As we come to this topic of gender equality, uh, which I'm going to open up and I'm going to pray in a moment. But the first thing I want to say is I just want to like gospelize you guys from up front. Uh, as a preacher, I like to build to the gospel. and But instead for this talk, I just want to tell you up front and center uh, that when it comes to gender equality, a big part of that for male and female is where do you find value? You find it in position, you find it in your paycheck. I want to say you front and center, the gospel says to you, you are valued. You have worth. You know, um, to be, and what's really interesting is when you think of like, if someone is a good person for you to, to objectively say someone is good, someone can say, oh, I'm a good person, but actually be a horrible person, right? For them to be a good person, they need someone who's objectively good to say that is a good person. Maybe a judge or I don't know, someone, pastor, Louis, I don't know, someone who is morally good needs to declare that. And in the gospel, we have the God of the universe of infinite value say to you, you have value because you're made in my image. And so I want you to remember that. That's the good news of undeserved value that you do not deserve before we kick into this topic, if you're male or female. Let me pray. Uh, Father God, we thank you for the gift of now, the gift of sunshine and your church and your people, the gift of kids, the gift of the gospel, the gift of your word. I pray as well that you may fill us with your Holy Spirit so we may understand this topic, so we may be challenged by it and we may see how beautiful Jesus is. And then we may keep on following him and trusting him all our days. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in 2018, some economists at the Stanford University completed a study on the company Uber to see if there was a gender pay gap. The study analyzed 1.8 million Uber drivers in the USA. And Uber helped this study because of some allegations that the company had a misogynist culture uh, and, and basically was a sexist company. And it was assumed that uh, because Uber's algorithm uh, is basically you do not need to select which driver you want. Uh, it's just you pick a destination and then a male or female comes and picks you up. And considering both male and female drivers both get paid the same amount of money, it was assumed there would not be a gender pay gap at Uber. But what they discovered is that there was of 7%. And it was due to three factors. The first one was because men were more likely to drive at nighttime or to drive into areas that are a bit more dangerous and therefore had a bit more of a higher fee. The second reason is because men were more likely to persevere as Uber drivers, whereas women were more likely to quit. I think it's something like uh, 60, no, I think 70% of all women Uber drivers quit after like a few months and 50% of all men. So it's an industry where a lot of people resign and quit and give up on it, which makes sense. But the third reason why men were getting paid more is because statistically, this is just statistics here, women, okay? They drove faster than men. And so they completed more trips. Now, in response to this, some people will say this is conclusive evidence that the gender pay gap is utter nonsense. Men at Uber are paid more because they work harder, they go to the difficult jobs, and because they're more efficient and productive as drivers. While on the other side, some people argue this study proves how real the gender pay gap is. Women would be more likely to stay in the company if, it va if they valued women and the differences they bring. 
If Uber was willing to consider paying safer drivers over quicker drivers, then maybe women would stick around more in this company. In many ways, this case study is helpful because it highlights the political ideologies of those who are on the left and those who are on the right in politics. You see, traditionally, the right side of politics would argue that gender equality looks like equal opportunity. And so hence, Uber as a company has gender equality because a man and a woman have the opportunity to earn equally as much money. And at Uber, men are fairly being paid more because they're working more. While on the left side of politics, they would argue that gender equality is more about equal outcome. And they would argue that Uber is lacking gender equality because of its gender pay gap which is due to a male-dominated culture and a pay system that ignores the value of safety. Gender equality is, of course, a contentious issue, a political issue, but also a deeply personal issue. You know, there's this um, saying called Miles Law, which is basically where you stand in life is where you sit politically. In other words, your experiences, who you are, really does shape your politics and your political views. And of course, in this um, topic, it's hard not to be biased about this topic because you're either a male or you're a female. And maybe you're even looking at me today. If you're Joel, you're a man, which is true. Why are you speaking about this topic? And I think that's, let me, let me give you a few reasons. I, I think one reason is for centuries, men in position and influence have unfortunately contributed towards gender inequality rather than speak against them. And so therefore, I believe, and I'm sure you believe too, that we need more men speaking about this issue and joining women's voices in challenging our culture to listen. But also, even though gender inequality has primarily affected women throughout history, and as a man, I'll never be able to fully understand or comprehend that inequality, pure gender, gender equality though, which all of us longs for, is not just a woman issue, but it's a human issue that involves both men and women being equally valued and equally celebrated. This is clearly a personal but also important topic. Each year, there's a, gender, a global gender gap report. In the 2022 gender gap report, Australia was ranked 43rd out of 146 countries for gender equality. And there's actually, uh, as you look up the report, there's uh, four different areas where they basically measure gender equality. Nice motorbike, I wish I had that one. There is uh, economic participation opportunity, uh, so basically the economy and jobs, there is education, there is health and survival, and then there is political empowerment. And basically in this um, global report, what they found is that throughout these countries, 146, not every country, but a lot of countries in the world, uh, in particular when it comes to health and education, the gender um, gap is quite small. In other words, there's been a lot of work, so there's a lot of women who are getting good health services and good education throughout the world. And yet saying that there's still gender inequality in particular when it comes to economic participation, the you know, workforce, equal pay, as well as political empowerment. For example, let's talk about politics, talking about left and right. You probably know this, but historically, Australia was one of the first countries to allow women to vote. Uh, in 1943 was when two women with uh, one seat into Australian parliament. And in 1996, when John Howard was elected, the Liberals led the way in seeing a boost in numbers of women in Parliament of 23 who won seats in the House of Representatives. So the Liberals did a good job of getting gender equality in politics. 
But about this time in history, when John Howard got into Parliament, was the same time when the Australian Labor Party adopted a mandatory quotas for women in winnable Labor seats. In 2010, Julia Gillard became our first female Prime Minister of Australia. And then in the most recent 2022 elections, the Labor Party and the Teal Independents had many seats won by women. Today, in Australia, in Australian Parliament, there is a record-breaking number of women. They make up more than 41% of 227 seats across both houses, with 37% in the lower house being women and 58% in the Senate. You know, clearly this topic is important. And yet I also was just talking to someone before that in our culture, not just politically, but culturally, this topic is quite relevant. As we're seeing a clash between transgender rights and women's rights, in particular in sport. You know, I feel like our culture out there is confused about like, where does women's rights fit in with, with our cultural moment now? And which is good news for us who follow Jesus. Because the Bible isn't confusing. The Bible paints clarity for humanity, which may be countercultural to our day, but also compelling. You see, God's vision for humanity is not feminism or masculinism, but is a beautiful, equal partnership between man and woman. And to unpack this vision, we're going to be looking through the scriptures and we're going to be using a biblical theology framework of going to creation, fall, and then Jesus. Creation, fall, and Jesus. If you have a Bible, keep it open. We're going to have a look firstly in Genesis, which is that first Bible reading in verse 25. But before I read that out, final thing I want to say is a disclaimer. Uh, today, just so you're aware, uh, is not a talk about uh, men and women's roles in the church. Uh, there are Jesus-loving, gospel-centered, spirit-filled men and women who love each other but disagree on what the Bible teaches on that topic. It's an incredibly important topic, and myself or Louis would love to talk to you about that. Um, and I get it's relevant to this topic as well. Um, but unless you want me to preach for two hours today, uh, which I'm guessing you don't want me to, uh, we're going to stick uh, to outside of that topic today. And so let's talk about gender equality, and let's have a look at creation, starting in Genesis 1. Let me read verse 25 again. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, his own image in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. Notice the repetition of image. Whenever the Bible repeats words, you've got to pay attention. It's trying to tell you something. But also, I wonder if you know this, that the, the Bible and Genesis has two creation accounts. There's Genesis 1 and there's Genesis 2. And Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 teaches two, well, teaches different things about God and about humanity. So, for example, Genesis 1 teaches us that God is transcendent. That's a big word. In other words, He is sovereign. He is powerful. He is big. He creates the world and He creates it with structure. Um, I used to be a civil engineer. And so when I read Genesis 1, I think this is how an engineer would write out the creation account, right? There's, there's order. But then in Genesis 2, we see a different creation account. And we see that God is imminent. Or in other words, He's personal. He's involved. He's close to humanity. He breathes life into Adam. And then He intentionally creates Eve. Genesis 2 is how more a poet would write the creation account. 
And in Genesis 1, you probably know this, but uh, as God creates all things, the climax of his creation, of course, is humanity. And, and, and it's important that he, it's, it's his climax because he creates humanity last. And we see that humanity is made in the image of God. And, and to be made in the image of God means to be God's representatives who mirror and who represent God's characteristics and qualities to this world. You see, I, I hope you noticed this in Genesis 1, you know, he didn't create the fish in his image. He didn't create the cows in his image. He didn't create cats in his image, right? No, he creates us in his image. And it's worth knowing that compared to other creation accounts in the ancient Near East, this creation account is radical because it actually values humanity. The other creation accounts consist of this narrative and story where the gods look down on pitiful humans, but not the Bible. In Genesis, we find a God who creates men and women in his image, who he values and who he cares about. He makes a home for Adam and Eve to enjoy. He provides company for Adam in Eve. He gives them a mission and a purpose to fulfill. He gives them wisdom with a commandment to obey. God cares about humanity. You see, he set you and I apart to stand as a living monument to represent his reign and represent his glory. I think John Calvin is the one who says, whenever you come into uh, contact with a human, that actually you should have reverence because they are made in the image of God. It's because both male and female are made in the image of God, all of us has intrinsic value and worth and dignity. And therefore, yes and amen, we should fight against gender inequality. And yet I want to highlight this. If you are new to church, any historian, ethicist or philosopher worth their salt knows that equality is a biblical concept. The concept of equality comes from a Judeo-Christian worldview and not from a scientific or evolutionary worldview, which is based on survival of the fittest. In Genesis 1, we see that gender equality matters. I mean, gender equality, it matters because we're both made in the image of God. However, in Genesis 2, we see this different perspective when it comes to gender equality, a perspective that I think our world needs to hear. You see, in Genesis 2, which wasn't read out to us, but I'm guessing you maybe heard of the narrative before, after God makes Adam and Eve and he puts them in the garden and gives this commandment not to eat, in verse 18, we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. In Genesis 1, there's this refrain, there's this saying that's repeated over and over again as God creates things. He says it is good. This is the only time though where he says it is not good when Adam is alone. And so what does he do? Well, most of you know the story. God uh, puts Adam to his sleep and then he, you know, uh, intentionally creates Eve out of his rib, not out of his head so that she's superior to him, not out of his feet so that she's inferior to him. No, he creates him out of his side so that she is his equal. Here we learn in that narrative written by the poet that man needs women and women need men. It's not good for a man or for a woman to be alone. We are dependent upon one another. Together, we bring glory to God as his image bearers, but also together, we are designed to flourish as well. And to be honest, I think this is the, the danger of extreme feminism. When the, the truth becomes that, that women are valuable is then blown up to the point that women are inferior, I mean, superior to men and demonize men. 
And this is also the tragedy of masculinism, which does the opposite um, problem, which says that men are superior to women. Genesis 1 is clear, we are equal, but also we are dependent upon one another and we are different to one another. In the 1990s uh, and early 2000s, this difference was accepted in our culture. Maybe you've heard of a book that was quite popular, which was Men Are From uh, Mars and Women Are From Venus. It was a very popular book that everyone celebrated and read and gave to their friends. But in today's culture, those differences are ignored and silenced. Uh, Matt Walsh, uh, I guess is very much right-leaning politically, but he's an American political commentator who created a documentary, What is a Woman? And in this documentary, he asked a question to medical experts, psychologists, politicians, professors, and normal people, what is a woman? To discover that most people were scared to answer that question. And also most people didn't have an answer to that question. But in Genesis 2, we see God is not scared to answer that question. We see a God that tells us that men and women are equal but different. So let's talk about those differences. The man, Adam, he is created first out of the dust. And because he is first, he has unique responsibility and authority to name the animals and to listen and to obey God's commands. Adam is special because he's created first. Just like a schoolyard pick, if you're playing basketball, you probably pick me because of my height rather than someone who's short. He's selected first, so he is special. And yet Eve is also special because she's created last. Personally, uh, what I hate about going to music concerts is, uh, you know, you pay to go see the main event band, but they don't come on first, do they? You know, you know, instead watch all these other bands that come on and they take forever and they're never as good. You never heard of them. You're just like, this is a waste of time. You got to wait till like nine o'clock till the main event comes on. And yet I understand why, you know, music concerts do this. They're trying to build tension and anticipation for the main event to come. This is the same like at a wedding, right? Who comes last? The bride walking down the aisle. Think of Jesus in the Bible. He doesn't even show up until the New Testament, right? The anticipation, the tension of him to come. Eve enters into history after tension and anticipation has been built. And actually what I love about the Genesis 2 narrative, if you haven't read it, it's, it's quite poetic, but also quite funny, is that God messes with Adam. Right, like God creates Adam out of the dust. He gives him this unique responsibility to name the animals. But also God says, it's not good that Adam is alone. So let's find him a suitable helper for him. And so what God does is he gets all the animals together and he gets them almost like on a bachelor sort of you know, show to walk down the red carpet. Well, this is blue carpet, this will do. Walk down the aisle towards Adam for then to decide whether or not they're a good helper or not. And you just picture it, right? Like here comes the gorilla and he's just like, no, no. The giraffe, he's like, no. The porcupine, is like, please, no. You know, then eventually here comes Eve and he just bursts out in song after every other animal's gone past, right? Like he is just so blown away that this is his helper. You see, uh, this is why he sings for Eve because deep down he knew he could not live on his own. Adam needed an ally. He needed a friend. He needed help. God gave him this commandment. He got this Tom to not eat from the tree. And he's like, I don't know how I'm going to do this without accountability. He needed an equal, but also someone who was different to him. Eve, who compliments him, 
who's like him and that she's human, but unlike him and that she's a woman. And while like we, you know, if you're a woman, you can be offended by that word helper. I need you to understand that God is called a helper many times in the scriptures. That's an honorable position. Eve is essential. Without Eve and her differences, humanity is done. Obviously they can't multiply, but also without Eve, humanity would just fail at ruling. Now to be clear, the order of Adam and Eve in creation doesn't mean as well, just because Adam is created first and has unique responsibilities, doesn't mean women can't be CEOs or men can't be PAs. Genesis 2 is not saying that or prescribing that. No, the point of Genesis 1 and 2 is to teach us that both genders are equal but different. Both genders need each other to flourish and we need our differences to flourish together, which is why our differences should be celebrated and not silenced. You see, our culture says that men and women are different because of environment, social constructs or evolution. But the Bible says, no, we are different by design. But then unfortunately, also because of sin, there is gender inequality. If that's part one, creation, let's talk about part two, the fall. In Genesis 3, if you haven't heard of this word, the fall before, it's a, it's a word to describe Genesis 3 where uh, humanity falls short. In Genesis 3, verse 16, I'll just read out this verse to you. It says this, To the woman, God said, after they'd eaten from the tree, and He comes down to show them the consequences. God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Sin is why gender inequality exists. See, when, when Adam and Eve ate from that forbidden tree and, and sin entered into the world, that sin affects you and I physically. There's pain and suffering and death. Sin affects us spiritually with our relationship with God. There's death there as well. But also it affects us relationally. It affects marriages, but also the relationship between men and women in culture. Sin and its consequences is why we don't have God's vision for humanity. And you know what's interesting is that the Bible doesn't ignore the reality of gender inequality, but actually it highlights it. You know, Genesis 4, the next chapter after the fall, you see the obnoxious Lamech who marries two women. In Genesis 9, you see this disgusting story of how Lot tried to offer two of his daughters to be raped. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, this is important. So listen to this. God's people and men in particular are at their worst when they mistreat and abuse women and children. Probably the worst part in Israel's history is written in Judges chapter 19, where there is a woman who is then raped and then cut into pieces and then sent throughout Israel. Unfortunately, brutality and the mistreatment of women physically, emotionally, and sexually didn't just happen in Israel back then, but continues to happen today. One woman is killed every week in Australia by their partner. One in four women will be in an emotionally abusive relationship. One in three Australian women over 15 have experienced physical violence. One in five women will be sexually assaulted. Gender discrimination and sexual harassment threatens a woman's basic right to feel safe in her home. 
but also to be respected in her workplace. There's been progress, as I mentioned before, but many countries are still falling short of the simple concept of equal pay for equal work. The Australian Workplace Gender Equality Agency argues that there is a 22.8% gender pay gap in Australia. Women face barriers and glass ceilings when it comes to leadership roles and encounter reduced employment opportunities because of the family and caring responsibilities. Statistically, one in two mothers experience discrimination during pregnancy or while on parental leave. I mentioned before that we had three children. There's Elijah, who's 10, Isaiah just turned eight, and then Lily, uh, who's about to turn five. And uh, before my wife was a stay-at-home mom, she's now back working. Actually, she did the copyright for the website, Louis. So if there's any spelling mistakes, that's my wife. So there won't be, let me tell you. Um, but before that, she worked at another company before she had our first child. And uh, as she had Eli, uh, she, her plan was to go back to work. She didn't love her job, but she was thinking about going back to work uh, a few days a week. Uh, and her employer was all for that. But then uh, as it was getting down to business time, about a year after she had a baby and, and we're thinking about Emma going back to work, her employer called her up and said, you know what, Emma, I don't know how uh, you could keep doing the job that you're doing part time, which is a complete lie. She absolutely could, the work she was doing. Um, and so instead, what we want you to do is we're going to shift you to another role, uh, which we think would be better for you to do from, you know, part time. And, but for that to happen, I just need you to uh, sign a resignation letter from your current role before I send you a contract for the new role. Uh, at the time, my, my wife, like, trusted this company, liked the people she worked with, trusted them. And so she said, yeah, sure, no worries. Um, but she didn't do it immediately. And then a week later, they called her up and said, hey, just, you know, we just need to know, we just need to have that resignation letter before we can send you this next contract. Can you please send it to us? And so my wife thought, okay, sure, no worries. And so she filled in the resignation letter and then sent it uh, to them. A week later, we found out that the uh, company went under and every other employee got a redundancy package uh, except for my wife. My wife had been working that company and doing an excellent job and making their money. And yet in that moment, wasn't treated fairly. And this happens over and over again because of conscience and unconscious gender bias. And unfortunately, the church is not innocent when it comes to shaping culture's views and perceptions of women. I have a quote here from Martin Luther. I want to emphasize this. This is Martin Luther, not Joel Deacon saying these words, okay? Martin Luther said a lot of great things uh, as a reformer, a German pastor, did a lot of amazing things, but this quote here, maybe not his best. This is something he says. He says, men have broad and large chests and small and narrow hips and more understanding than women who have but small and narrow breasts and broad hips. To the end, they should remain at home, sit still, keep house and bear and bring up children. Martin Luther, not Joel Deacon, okay? Please do not <laughs> quote me on that one, okay? In response to all this, women and feminists have rightly fought for gender equality. And look, to be clear, and maybe to challenge some men in this room, or not room, in this <laughs> outdoor setting. It's worth acknowledging that throughout history, the feminist movement has done great things in achieving women's rights and fighting for gender equality. And to do this historically, you probably know this, but the feminists originally tried to fight against the stereotypes by pressing girls to be more assertive and boys to be more nurturing. Women were celebrated for entering into the workforce and men were celebrating for doing more at home. 
Women uh, were encouraged to find sexual freedom and the, the, uh, the, the, I guess, abortion, the birth control pill, unfortunately, aided this in many ways. And some of these things are good and, and maybe should be encouraged, but at the same time, this created a crushing pressure on women to have it all and to be it all, to have the perfect career, the perfect body, the perfect house and the perfect family all by the time you're 35. And for this reason, some feminists have shifted from teaching that women need to be more like men and fighting stereotypes to instead celebrating feminine virtues. In an article in the Australian this year called, I am young, ambitious woman choosing kids over work, the author of Virginia, who's not a follower of Jesus, says these words. She says, the feminist movement still has work to do. In order to argue the case for women being able to work outside the home, career feminists had to de-integrate the act of caring for children in the home. They had to argue that childcare and home duties were beneath them. Naturally, they sought empowerment by placing themselves where power lay, in the workplace. They viewed power through the lenses of the patriarchy, the very system they sought to dismantle. You see how difficult it is to be a woman in this broken world which we live in. Thankfully, Jesus, though, comes and shows us a better way. Part one is creation. Part two is the fall. Part three is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, who was born, of course, the Virgin Mary. Jesus, who had an intimate and close relationship with his mother, Mary, and showed love and respect for her. Jesus, whose first miracle was because he was listening to his mom at the wedding and turning water into wine. The last person who Jesus thought about at the cross was his mother, Mary. Jesus loved women in a way that was countercultural and compelling in his day. You probably know this, but the Greco-Roman world was a man's world. Statistically, about 60% of the population were men and 40% were women. And that's because female babies were left to die at birth because men were more valued in that culture. Women were second-class citizens back in that Greco-Roman world where Jesus existed. Most women were financially dependent upon men and discouraged from learning and teaching. And yet Jesus loved women by going against the cultural norms of his day. He talked directly to women in public, think about the widow at Nain. He talked to the non-Jewish woman like the Samaritan woman at the well. And actually, if you read that story in John, the disciples marvel just because he's talking to a woman. That's why they marvel. He talked to a woman who had been in an adulterous relationship and defended her from the hypocritical and abusive men by saying, he who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. He touched and healed bleeding women. He allowed a prostitute to weep at his feet and wash his feet. And radically, he encouraged Martha to be less busy in a kitchen and to sit at the feet like as a disciple, just like Mary. Like, think about how beautiful that story is. As Martha is working busy in the kitchen, preparing food, which by the way, is a good and loving thing to do. I don't want to say that's a bad thing. That's a great thing to do. But it was also expected that the norm of women to do it. Like why wasn't Jesus in the kitchen helping her create that food as well? Why weren't the disciples? Why didn't she go and get the disciples to come help her? She felt the pressure that she needed to do this and provide for the men and meet her cultural definitions of a woman. She's doing what Martin Luther wanted her to do and she's feeling overwhelmed. And so she asked for her sister to help. She doesn't ask for a man. And then what does Jesus say in response? 
He doesn't say, okay, Mary, go away. No, he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. You know, I love how Jesus tenderly talked to women, called them sisters and daughters. And to be clear as well, he didn't patronize women. He took them seriously. He took their sin seriously. Jesus honored women. He taught women. He ministered them in thoughtful ways. And this is probably why his ministry was funded by women. Dorothy Sayers sums it up well. This is a long quote, but and I might mark up some of the words because she's quite smart, but it's a really helpful quote. Let me read this to you. She says, Perhaps it is no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this. There's never been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coerced or patronized, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them as either the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being too female who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unself-conscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about a woman's nature. If you're a, a woman here, I don't know, there many are, Our world may disappoint you and hurt you, but Jesus understands you. Jesus sees you, Jesus loves you, and Jesus values you. He sees your glory and your garbage. He sees the real and raw you as an image bearer made to bring glory to God. At the cross, he was beaten, he was killed, and then he rose again for all women and all men so that anyone who puts their faith in Him may become a child of God, a son or daughter of God. If you're a Christian today, Jesus sees you as a daughter of God. If you're not yet a Christian today, I encourage you to put your faith in Jesus and become one. Women, you are loved by Jesus, but also men, you are loved by Jesus. Jesus loved women, but to state the obvious, He also loved and discipled men. He selected 12 male disciples. And of course, Jesus was a man. He could have been born a woman, but he was born a man. And look, people, some people may say that Jesus did this. He was a, he was a man. He had 12 disciples because he was afraid of offending cultural norms. Maybe Jesus was afraid of offending cultural norms. Personally, I don't buy that. If our culture had its way, Jesus would have been sexless. He would have had five women, five male apostles, and maybe two non-binary. But Jesus did not do this. Does this mean that Jesus is against gender equality and women? No. It just means He doesn't align with our culture's understanding of human flourishing and gender equality. Our culture, which thinks gender equality looks like sameness. Our quality whose view of men and women who is tarnished by the fall. Women, gender equality is about you being seen and appreciated. It's about you being valued. 
And like I said before, in our world, value seems to be measured by power and paychecks and accomplishments. You have to be seen, you have to be heard. You need to have equal pay and equal opportunities and these things are good and needed. But the hope of the gospel is that Jesus sees you and He values you, that He sees your sin and mistakes and He gives you the hope of heaven and a place where there's no more gender inequality. Jesus comes to remind both broken men and women deep down that our souls find value in Jesus alone, being known by the most valuable being in the universe. A deep relationship with Him is what you need if you are struggling and angry about gender inequality in our world. Because here's the thing as well, when you come to understand Jesus and how you found value in Him, not only will subjectively that, I guess, fulfill you and help you, but then also in your community, it will help you because then you'll be able to make a difference on this topic. You see, before I mentioned that in Jesus' day, the Greco-Roman world was a man's world, 60% men, 40% women because of infanticide. But in this society, the Christians, men and women followers of Jesus fought against this concept of killing babies just like many Christians do today. Many followers of Jesus adopted, rejected babies because they believed that both male and female are valued in the image of God. In the Greco-Roman world, women had to stay sexually pure before marriage and sexually faithful in marriage. But in the pagan society, it was accepted and expected that a husband could have mistresses if he wanted to. But Christianity came along and said, no, this is a double standard and rebukes the men and call them to faithfulness to their wives. For these reasons, women flocked to Christianity in the early church because women were valued and seen and appreciated. They saw the humanity in Christianity and these changes transformed social order and laid the foundations of gender equality today. Sit on a hill surf coast. Imagine the impact we could have if the church continues to talk about and to model gender equality that God wants. Imagine the impact we could have if both genders are genuinely loved, valued, and championed. And so look, to end, I want to say something to the men and something to women. Men, Jesus values you. Jesus sees you. He sees the hard work that you do that is underappreciated. He gets you. He knows what it's like to be a man. He knows what it's like to live in this world and to go through the suffering of your body or of work or just painful people or even that you see, letting yourself, uh, I guess, discourage yourself and not meeting your own expectations. He sees you, He values you, He appreciates you and He wants you to see, value and appreciate women. Women who are your sisters, not your subordinates. And so in your home, in your workplace, in your community, pray for women, love them. Do your best to champion in them and fight against inequality and gender bias. Learn to understand the pressures women face and encourage them. Pray for them, help them. And in a broken and dangerous world, do your best to wisely and gently protect them. But also women, Jesus sees you, Jesus values you, Jesus loves you. Not because he knows what it's like to be a woman. He wasn't a woman, but because he is God. And He made you in His image and you reflect Him in a way that men can't. Jesus wants you to fight for equality. Yes and amen, but He also wants you to fight for pure gender equality where women and men are both equally celebrated, to championed and seen and valued. And so in your home, 
in your workplace, in your community. Pray for men, love them, do your best to champion them, fight against the toxic lies that men are the root of all problems and cheap jokes that all men are useless. Because church, we need each other. We are created equal, different, but also dependent. Jesus' vision for humanity is that we flourish together. And so may we be a city on a hill that does that. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.